Tyler, do you want to hear a joke? Do I? Yeah. You do? <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I do, yes. What's Irish and stays out all night? You're in Boston. <laughs> I know, I'm like trying to... I'm, I don't know. What is, what, what is it? Patty O Furniture! <laughs> you must have been working on that one for some I, time. <laughs> I actually, I when I was living in San Francisco, I knew a bunch of Irish guys, and that was um, like it was like it's like a laffy taffy joke or something like that. And we would always joke because one of, of course one of those na- names was Patty, but uh, I thought that was so hilarious. It's a total dad joke, but it, it, I really hope that Brad Falchuk got that name from the laffy taffy rapper. I wonder, because as soon as that came out, I was like, oh, he must have heard that joke. <laughs> what, what, would your drag, what would your drag name be? Oh, I don't know. I thought Crystal Decanter is a fantastic drag name. I don't know that I could do better than that. Which, do you watch RuPaul's Drag Race? I have seen episodes before. I am not a regular watcher. Same, and I really want to. As, but as soon as the drag queens came on in this episode, I was like, oh, I guarantee one of them. And I looked up uh, Crystal Decanter, and it Decanter. is played by Eureka, who's on All Stars. So I, I, really, I really want to watch the show. I heard it's amazing. I'm sure yes. listeners watch it too. Um, Excellent, yeah. I'm not using Joey this Devin. name, but, but, but one of my names that I think would be a good drag name is Amber Waves. Is that like a Miss America? Like Amber <laughs> Waves of Grain. I know that's what it came from. Yeah, me. yeah, like Amber <laughs> Waves. Um, but also, it's because I live in the Midwest, and I, I do want to give credit. Yeah. One of my friends came up with it because um, we're, we're, we were all agriculture reporters for a while, and he was like, "If he he if he ever did drag, his name would be Amber Waves." And I was like, "I really like that. That's that's brilliant." I feel like there's a whole persona you already are building there. Mm-hmm. What song would you What song would you sing on stage? Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm like like just wanting to say out like out my mouth immediately party in the usa yeah of course of course yes i think it's because miley yeah. cyrus just played at this bottle rock festival that's in my hometown and i saw all my friends on instagram who went to it because she headlined it uh watching her sing that version as an adult it's kind of funny anyway great song <laughs> what are we talking about <laughs> this is silly uh let's should we start yeah Good evening, everybody, and welcome to This American Horror Story, an unofficial podcast about the FX hit show, American Horror Story. I am your host, Tyler Moss, here with my co-host. Chris Husted. What's up, everyone? We are, is this crazy? We are already four episodes in of the first, like, six-episode part one of Double Feature. That's crazy. Tyler, how are you feeling about that? Just like this year, it's going by too quickly, you know, characters I want to spend more time with storylines mm. i want to spend more time with for you know um it it feels like it's blowing by i mean we waited so long for this season we waited so long to see macaulay culkin on american horror story to get sarah paulson and evan peters back and here we are already you know post episode four so it's it you know it's uh it's emotional it's starting to get emotional that's how i feel about it 
it's it's wild because we've only got two episodes left of this part of the story, which means we have our penultimate, which usually sets up the big finale, starts the big finale, and the and then the finale before we move on to the next story. I'm not ready to leave this story yet. I'm really into it. I love this. Me too. And then we're gonna. I mean, we're gonna see how they're tied together, which mm-hmm. is going to be. You know, I feel like there's a lot writing on it. You know, oh. there's a lot writing on it. Yep. So much pressure. <laughs> of course, before we dive into episode four of Red Tide, titled Blood Buffet, uh, we need to always, as always, remind you all that you can send us your questions and your thoughts and your theories uh, to our email at thisamericanhorrorstory at gmail.com. We try to reply to all of those that come in and, and feature uh, them on the show when uh, they fit the different things we're talking about. And of course, um, you can join our discussion on Facebook at facebook.com slash this American Horror Story or, you know, comment on a post, shoot us a message, whatever you want to do. And rate us and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate that too. Um, you know, helps new people find the podcast. It's called Apple Podcasts now, Tyler, not iTunes. Did I say iTunes? Yeah. I meant at, that's, that's do you listen to them on your iPod? Like, that's like eight years old. You know what? That came your from shuffle? probably the original uh, back in the old asylum days and stuff like that when I used to say iTunes. Now it's now it, the the preferred saying is whatever platform you're on. You know, you could be listening from any platform. We know we've got listeners on Spotify, on Stitcher, everywhere else. So I apologize for being uh, solely focused on not even Apple Podcasts, but iTunes. That is exclusionary of me, and I did not intend that. Before we <laughs> dive into, <laughs> before we dive into the beauty that is Blood Buffet, there is some uh, a series of emails and messages I wanted to run through with you real quickly. Uh, Chris has not seen any of these yet, so it's more of a case of you know I play it forward and we discuss it and, and react. So I'm going to start with a I thought a really excellent message from our longtime listener Bryce that came in mm-hmm. via email. Um, we've talked a lot about the, how the season is really doing a good job of its subtlety in its messaging and kind of what's happening with the subtext and the privileged and underprivileged already. And I feel like Bryce, Bryce had a good uh, kind of build on this. He said, you know, the first two episodes were basically an allegory for how the wealthy leech off of the underprivileged for their own personal gain. With the introduction of Angelica Ross's The Chemist, I think a case could be made that now this story is shifting towards a black intellectual property and black innovations such as rap music, fashion, hairstyles, or often crypto stolen by white influencers, mm-hmm. like with TikTok dances and such, and watered down for the masses. He said, I remember when the whole boxer, boxer braids trend was popular and how so many of my black female friends were like, those are cornrows. I wore them when I was a little girl. This isn't new. I think it's fascinating that Belle Noir and Austin Summers and Harry Gardner are lauded and rewarded for their writing talents when their writing is only because of a black woman, the chemist. It does make me worry for the chemist because if history is any indicator, once the knowledge of how her black pill is made comes out, she will no longer be needed and someone like Ursula will cut her out and market the drug as her own. I think that that was very insightful. Thanks for sharing with us, Bryce. And I think you're totally right. And I think with the introduction of Ursula last episode coming in and clearly uh, trying to mass market the pill, I think you could definitely see the story going that way where Ursula takes over the whole enterprise and... Something terrible could happen to the chemist, which I hope isn't the case because I'm thinking oh, after this episode too, uh, fascinating character, which I'm really enjoying. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, yeah, very good points. Uh, we also have not seen a person of color take one of these pills yet. 
that's I think sort of noteworthy. True. In fact, between the chemist and Chief Burleson, they've kind of been the most um, like reasonable. I don't know, like regimented, almost like. I was going to even say like scientific method in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. in the chief's case, it's like through investigation and stuff like that. And obviously very literal in how the chemist is approaching. So that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. And, and both so, women. And both women. Next, let's talk about, uh, well, we yes. had, yes. It, I wanted to talk about how we had three people, at least three people email us. Wondering if the chemist is a witch. There's a lot of people that are hoping for <laughs> a tie between the chemist and coven. They want the coven tie-in. I don't know. What do you think? I think after this episode, it's probably less likely. I mean, I, I thought it could have been possible the way that the, uh, the chemist was talking pretty like vaguely about how the recipe for the muse pill came up. It's still possible it could be tied in. I feel like it's less likely though after this episode. What do you think? Yeah, um, as, a, as a trained scientist in my previous career... Uh, and my undergrad degree, which, you know, what what, what does that mean <laughs> years later? Um, it's a lot of buzzwords and a lot of uh, anatomical words that are in terms that are used that does it really make sense if someone really picked this apart? Of course not, because it's American Horror Story. But um, it works enough for what we're dealing with here. And I think there is a purpose to the vagueness. One is we don't want to be too confusing and complex. Uh, like maybe if we're going to talk about like Walter White and his what he did, which was a little more accurate to what it takes to build a drug. She like pops like it's a it looks like a really simple process when we see her her do it. Um, but there isn't really a breakdown of what her ingredients are. So I think that's left open. So there could be a possible tie in. And now that we know that all the seasons are connected in the same universe, I could I could see that happening. I hope we don't get that really in this season just because it would be a lot to go back to Coven for the third time. And everyone will be coming back from the dead. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Death won't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a cool That's a cool theory. I mean, I'm curious if they'll play into that or not. I like it, yeah. Uh, we have a lot of people who wrote in making connections to Lyme disease. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of folks who believe that there is going to be some bigger purpose for Lyme disease, which I appreciate, um, and I think it's possible. It's certainly been talked about enough. You know, I think when we heard about it in the first episode with Doris talking about it, we thought, oh, maybe this is just kind of oh. mocking, kind of the New Yorker who's out and kind of you know outside of the city has irrational worries about nature, that kind of thing. Um, but Doris is still continuing to bring it up after episode three. So who knows? Maybe there's something there. Mm-hmm. Mark also via email shared this, um, what I thought, which I thought was interesting that, uh, he made the point that, you know, Lyme disease is spread by blood sucking creatures that transform their victims. This is obviously a season in, uh, in which that is a very prominent theme. Mm-hmm. If left untreated, Lyme can lead to major neurological issues that can make people feel they, like they aren't themselves. You know, that also sounds similar to what's happening. And then he said, I think her fixation on Lyme is like a displaced fear of vampires, and I think it's pretty brilliant to include in this story. Also, there's a conspiracy theory that the spread of Lyme disease is a result of the U.S. Department of Defense experimenting on weaponizing ticks. So that's interesting. And obviously now we know that the chemist worked for uh, the The government. Yeah, she did. So, I mean, it's a conspiracy theory, but it's, it's out there in the ether, and it's yeah, I don't know. It's it's interest, an interesting one. So thanks for sharing that, Mark. 
Biowarfare. Uh, are you pulling up some books on that? Oh, no. No. Are you just theorizing about biowarfare? Yeah, that is, yeah. Biochemical warfare, but through, you know, creatures. Yeah. Then we had Bree share an article that she'd read on Screen Rant uh, that was talking about how there was a serial killer in Provincetown in the 60s. We had already talked about some kind of strange instance like in the 30s. But this was a guy named Antoine Charles Tony Costa who would murder women by leaving signature bite marks on their neck. So uh, P-Town and Cape Cod does have a history of some strange like bitey creatures and stuff like that apparently people think he was under the influence of lsd when he did this i would not be surprised (laughs) sounds about right for the era yep um an interesting throwback scarlet was scarlet you know that she was rewatching asylum and noticed that kit and you'll remember that kit's first wife's name was alma uh they mentioned that in order to get married they had to travel to Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, together. that's a deep cut reference. I didn't. I didn't remember that. That's awesome. Thank you, Scarlett. Yeah. So maybe uh, this was brewing in Ryan Murphy and Brett Pelchick's head since season two. Something along the lines happening in Provincetown. Um, and let's see. I think Jen was the last one I wanted to uh, shout out because Jen said that after listening to us talk about the Browns. Who you'll remember, that's the family who was letting the gardener stay in their home for free. I thought about um, that today. Yeah. Did you? Well, yeah. I'd be curious to hear what you say. She said, my initial thought was the same. It was that that name could be purposeful um, as a way of connecting or paying tribute to Mercy Brown, who was one of the first suspected cases of vampirism in the U.S. Um, she said, I know this is my boyfriend uh, or my best friend forever lives in Rhode Island. And we have driven past the graveyard that Mercy Brown is buried in many times during one of my visits. Well, I haven't done a deep dive into everything Mercy Brown, a quick Google search leads to articles that link Mercy Brown to the vampire panic in New England that happened with the outbreak of tuberculosis, TB Karen. Interesting connections, considering the geographical setting of the season, the consumption of blood to satisfy the hunger of people who take the pill, and Sarah Paulson's, Paulson's character, TB tuberculosis. Karen. Tuberculosis. So, yeah. another great insight. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, that's great. Wow. it's like we've hired a bunch of um research interns for our podcast (laughs) i know it's lovely i i mean can't say how much uh, i appreciate all the insight what did you think what's the thought about the brands that crossed your mind today oh i literally was just thinking like huh i wonder who they are because we haven't talked about them in a while i i wasn't doing research so i was just like i i can't they're still looming over this whole situation of who owns this house that would let them have it for free just so Doris could possibly decorate it, even though Doris is, this is her second career and her family doesn't think she's talented because she chooses beige on beige. So That's there's right. something going to happen. Something's yeah. happening with that house. I mean, I think Holden Vaughn is probably involved because he's also an interior decorator. You know, he's going to get involved with Doris. I'm excited to see where that goes before we dive in now to blood buffet. What are you drinking this evening? I have a nice glass of uh, Napa Cabernet from Robert Mondavi. It just felt good tonight. It's hitting the September, still warm, but like cooling quickly, getting darker quicker. So it just felt nice to have that. I, as I said before, I'm very getting clo- I'm getting very close to uh, purchasing my cider. Maybe the next week or two. What What are you drinking? I also have a transition beverage. I indeed have 
bourbon meet without the cider. The cider is coming soon. Uh, but this is, um, oops, Four Roses Small Batch. So Did you smooth. smell it? It goes down easy. Just a touch. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Chris, can you walk us through the cold open of Blood Buffet? Yeah, absolutely. So we opened October uh, five years ago in classic title card uh, American Horror Story. And we see the chemist rolling into town and she meets up in the house that she currently lives in. Uh, she meets uh, Holden Vaughn there, uh, which is Dennis O'Hara's character. And he says that Norman Naylor uh, used to live two doors down. So this is a reference. And if you'll um, indulge me while I go through this reference real quick. Uh, Norman Mailer is a, uh, I believe, two-time Pulitzer Prize winning author, but he's also an actor, a director, an artist, a playwright, like one of those just incredibly talented people. Um, and Holden, the character, says that he remembers seeing uh, Norman Mailer bite Riptorn's ear off. Uh, and that that's a reference to this uh, pretty famous well, fairly famous, I should say, because I didn't really know about it too much. Um, that comes from a movie that Norman Mailer was directing at the time in 1970 called Maidstone. Uh, so he directed it and he started it. Um, it was filmed in the Hamptons, I believe. So not Provincetown, but the Hamptons. So sort of, you know, similar aesthetic. Um, and there were, in the scene, there's an improvised fight between the two characters who I, play, I believe they play brothers or half-brothers or something like that, which is Riptorn and Norman Mailer. Um, but the improvised fight turns violent when Riptorn hits Norman Mailer in the head with a, with a hammer, I believe, and actually like injures him. And they really start wrestling around and turning violent, uh, culminating in... Uh, and uh, Mailer biting a, a tiny chunk out of um, Riptorn's ear. And the, that real fight got broken up. I think Norman Mailer's wife and his kids in the end were like pulling, like screaming, like, get off him. And that whole scene ends up in the actual movie. They still they say each other's real names in it, but it still ends up in the movie. Um, and it's on YouTube. I watched it. It's like a bit disturbing and it's very amateur looking. Uh, it's it's. It's supposed to be, I think, this is during his avant-garde filmmaking years, so it's a little out there and weird, but it's the whole thing's in there. It's like six, seven, eight, nine minutes long on YouTube. I had to fast-forward through part of it because it was a lot. Anyway, that's that reference, very specific reference, which is really interesting and cool, and I love when they when they do something like that for American Horror Story. Anyway, that's a brief mention and a, a big explanation of what that reference was, but it's really noteworthy. Um, anyway, she's getting the tour of the house, uh, and the chemist is concerned about the ventilation. Um, she says she just left her job as a chemist. Um, and he, and he puts two and two together. He's like, you know, what are you doing here? Like you're, you want the ventilation. You're, you're a chemist, you know, this town, like, are you cooking, cooking meth? She's like, dude, I got a PhD from Harvard. Like cooking meth is way below me. <laughs> um, so then we, she says she'll take it, and we, uh, we get the beginning of what is her origin story, um, along with a lot of other characters in this or uh, in this episode. The entire flashback happens, um, but we get the origin story with the montage of science, science happening, which is 
just using utensils and tools, beakers and, and so forth that are not used. I mean, they've got special colors and they look cool, but are they really doing something? We don't know. <laughs> um, but it's one of the better scientific shots that I've seen in a while, especially for a show like American Horror Story. Uh, she's at least wearing gloves. Sometimes they're not even wearing gloves. She isn't wearing a mask, though, I don't, I, I don't believe in. If you're cooking drugs, you're going to wear a mask. Anyway, it ends with her like pressing and pulling out the first black pill. And then we get the credits. Mm. It was a pretty short one, wasn't it? It was short. It was short. Can I this whole episode was shorter. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Why do you think that Norman Miller reference? Do you think it was just like an interesting little journey for people who wanted to go look it up? I think people who are Gen X are going to get it, maybe, um, who are literary fans. Um, and it, it puts the type of people that came to the place. Not that he was taking the pill, but he is known as a very influential uh, intelligent, uh, well-written dude. So, this, the, like these references of these like famous people that we hear who are talented is a lot of the t- discussion in all of these episodes. Who's talented? Who's not? Who is willing to? Well, in this in the current context, who is willing to risk or gamble on how talented they think they actually are? True. Also, just the biting of people. Maybe that's part of it, too. Um, Definitely. I also enjoyed the more spending of time with Holden Vaughn. I still don't think we have enough of him or understand his role I love in him. the story yeah. just yet, but he's great. Um, I think we can still confirm that, I mean, I think after this we can confirm that he is not on the news pills. He's just a naturally talented person. Mm-hmm. Um, I also enjoyed hearing about his uh, nostalgia for... But homosexual oh, Americana. <laughs> there, yes, there are so many gay jokes in these episodes. Like we got it. It was a big destination for gay men in the I don't know seventies, eighties, nineties. Oh, it still is. But I mean, I think that you know he was longing for days when it hadn't been more widely discovered because now it is a family destination and stuff too. So it's it was almost kind of you know before it became a more mainstream destination and yeah. i'm sure his like i'm sure in his mind too it's, it, that includes more mainstream for gay culture too right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um we learned the chemist left a job in chemistry in providence later on we learn it's from the military um do we can you remind me do we ever learn like why she left that job do we she know blames, if it was she says it was a divorce but um but we we don't yeah. know exactly i mean i think that's a lie but um, yeah. we we don't know specifically why she left, with the exception of she wants to continue to conduct her research. And they were testing it on apes. She wants to test humans. Maybe this is her chance to go do that. Um, right, right. And this is also one of my big issues I have with her character, to be honest, is she doesn't seem to have completely thought this through. <laughs> As a scientist, <laughs> releasing people onto the with this medication into a small town a resort town in the off season to start murdering all the people in the town <laughs> i mean with the direct line back to her <laughs> I, I, she doesn't seem to care too much honestly about the you know what's happening you know 
with people dying and stuff like that. She doesn't seem too perturbed when people come back and are like, I murdered my husband or I ate this poor lady who was grieving at a gravestone. Um, she's more interested in like, what, <laughs> what did you feel? It's a very um, divorced from emotion, scientific approach. She's taking everything, but very good point too, that it like, it all very clearly traces back to her at this point. Uh, so maybe you think maybe she would be a little bit more careful. It's like, um, you know, that I think it was like in Florida 10 years ago when people were taking bath salts and like even ripping their each other's faces off and stuff. <laughs> like, I never bath you salts, stuff yeah. Back. Yeah, you can track this stuff back to substance. Um, just before we dig into the more meat of the story, another episode written by Brad Falchuk. He has been, I think he's he's written all four with him and Ryan Murphy together doing the first two. So it'll be, I'm interested to see if you know, the, the two of them write the whole season themselves. Yeah. Um, that seems where we're heading at this point. And yeah. then our new director for this episode is uh, Axel Carolyn, mm-hmm. uh, who is an indie horror darling, uh, directed 2015's Tales of Halloween anthology series, was named one of Tribeca's horror directors to look out for. Also directed a episode of The Haunting of Bly Manor, which yeah. I know uh, talked about yeah. enjoying um, th- that in The Haunting of Hill House as well. So, so that's cool. Uh, diving back into The Chemist, I mean, I think, you know, really what this episode is, is origin stories for mm-hmm. the characters we know have spent time in Provincetown over the years. Of course, that is The Chemist, uh, who's kind of the main driving force in this episode, along with Mickey, along with Belnoir, and then finally Austin, with a mm-hmm. touch of Holden and Lark. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting to see Mickey back then. Mickey continues to be just kind of a, like, troubled but sweet character. I, dude, Macaulay Culkin's killing it. He's so great. I, I know I know the audience reception of him in this has been wonderful. He's he's definitely, like, a fan favorite character at this point. And I agree. He's He's great. He's sweet. He's got this like true intention and he's charming. It, it, he's, it's just McCauley and Macaulay Culkin's doing a wonderful job of it because if you're, if you hear Macaulay Culkin's going to be in a, in a story, you know, most of us immediately think of home alone and how much we love little Kevin McAllister. So seeing him be also kind of a sweet, but disturbed and affected young. Well, he's not a young man. He's probably in his supposed to be in his thirties and thirties, but uh, but it, he's doing a great job, and he's really kind of the heart of what this whole season is. I think so too, and I think it's it, you know it's telling that when she kind of and I, actually the other thing I want to say is this was a good device for the chemist like explaining the background of the pill that didn't seem to hit you over the head was like you know paying Mickey for his Halloween special to come over and like talk him through it and because like. You know, it, it does seem feasible that she'd be giving him this background info because she's trying to convince him to take it, right? So she wants him to understand what's possible. Although she does, I mean, she talks about the experiments on Abe. She talks about the U.S. military using it to unlock parts of the creative brain. And she starts by asking him about his dreams and things because the idea is it's going to entice him to, you know, try to pursue his creative dreams. Um, I, I The one line I wrote down here is the chemist saying non-creative one, non-creatives can tolerate their lack of talent until uh, they're confronted with it, then their mediocrity drives them mad. So at that point, I mean, you have to appreciate that at least Mickey isn't arrogant. <laughs> it is like, you know, he's like, when she's like, are you talented? He's like, I don't know. I, I've never put my writing in front of somebody else before. 
I find that very interesting too, because it, when I first heard that, I was like, I think we already got that by now. But she's she's really spelling out a little bit more of what the the actual people who are succeeding with this drug, which is people who are arrogant and already think that they're the best. There are plenty of people out in the world who are incredibly talented, who are humble or you know don't have that confidence. Um, but the only people that are succeeding with the drug that we've met so far are the Kanye Wests who think they're hot shit and they're really good and they are the next greatest thing. They're God's gift. Um, and that's what, that's what she believes. So it'll be interesting to see if we ever see someone take this drug who isn't that personality or have, have those characteristics. I mean, Mickey does eventually. Right. So, and because we're still in the flashback, now I'm like really eager to see what happens with him. I mean, we've already seen that he can write now, but isn't is there any going to be other side effects that are different than the the you know the dichotomy of the two worlds that we've seen so far, which is the people who aren't that talented but think they are, and people who are talented and can back it up. Right. Right. And know they are. Uh, right. So Mickey kind of becomes really her facilitator, you know, finding people for her to experiment upon. Um, I would say better recruiter. Or Rec- yeah, recruiter. I guess that's the best the best word for it. Uh, and I, I forgot to mention two other important characters that show up, TB Karen, who we realize is just a poor, sickly person. Yeah. Um, who's also a, dr- a drug addict, but a drug addict with, it sounds like, you know, chronic conditions, including bronchitis that keep coming back and back. And clearly Five times this year. Made her much worse. Um, but she seems... She seems in better shape than she certainly does five years later, once Provincetown is overrun by creatives. Um, and then also uh, a singer who... Did you recognize the singer when we first saw him? No, who is it? Oh, it's 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 the same guy who plays the pale person oh, 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 guys in yeah, the first yeah, yeah. episode. That's oh, what I, I thought, meant. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, you did you realize that he was going to be the person who transitioned into a pale person? That's I... I had I had my inclinations just because he has that kind of tall, skinny vibe. So I was like, oh, I don't think it's going to work. And when he sang, I was like, oh, he's really talented. Would you win on The Voice? No, you wouldn't. But, you know, you're quasi-handsome and you can carry tune at the karaoke bar. But, I, but, but I, yeah, I, I, I had some um, feelings that, that, that this could be that character, yeah. The first pale person. Right. Spencer Novich, who is the uh, actor who we know is recruited from the world of uh, Cirque du Soleil. Um, again, this scene felt very Twin Peaks to me, too, with him singing in front of them like totally. that. Totally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was um, actually... Ghostwood Hotel? Is that what it was called in Twin Peaks? The place across I, well, the lake? Oh, where, yes, the, the, the hotel. But then, of, of course, there's the Bang Bang, which is the oh, right. uh, the club where they have the music. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed seeing kind of, I, I had written in my notes, I think before this episode that like, I, one thing I really want to see soon is somebody transform into a pale person. Like, do they do it immediately? How does it happen? So seeing him, you know, go through the process of looking in, like starting to feel sick and looking in the mirror and having his hair fall out and <laughs> buying that ridiculous jacket. And every like getting to that point, I I was very entertained by that, and I was I was I enjoyed getting that background. Yeah, 
No, it, it's fun that we think we're seeing our main characters get their origin stories, but we're also getting the origin story of the Pale People. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other person we get a extensive background on is, of course, Belle Noir, mm. who I loved the scene where she was reading from her retelling of the George Washington story. I wrote my notes like, I think I actually would 100% read this book. It sounds fantastic. Martha's Cherry Tree. So good. <laughs> so good. I love it. Some of the- also... This is this is Frances Conroy at her best too. I think. I mean, I love her as um, uh, like these eccentric oh, characters, larger than life characters. Yeah, yeah, she's great at it. But when she play like this is this is a Ruth Fisher. This is her uh, six feet under character, just kind of like just a little dowdy and driven down, unhappy, and trying to do something, and then a few bursts of emotion every now and then. So I got very six feet under vibes, which. Which was an amazing show, and we've talked about it before. But anyway, mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, she clearly is struggling. Um, her husband is such an asshole. I mean, I wrote in my notes like, I hope this is the first person you kill because he is a dick. The writing was on the wall for that, for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, the first thing he says is call, uh, calling her weak and scared and boring, and they've been married for forty years. You know, I, there's a part of you that, I mean, you, you could argue that Belle Noir in her current iteration in, like, the actual timeline of the show is now kind of a bad guy. But, you know, you, you really, when you see her at this point in time, you're like, she really does kind of deserve a second act if she had to spend 40 years with this douchebag. Absolutely. I mean, he says that, you know, he, he references, like, well, I, you know, we got married 40 years ago and I was at work, so... I didn't have to deal with you all the time. And now I'm assuming he's retired and this is her passion project and he's helping her do it. And now he's spending all the time with her and he just despises her and it's awful. He treats her horribly. Mm-hmm. Well, so of course we see her get hooked up through Mickey to the muse pills and her creative juices get totally flowing. We see those fingers fly. She wrote 500 pages in a single sitting, which is more than any, even anything Harry produced. Then her husband comes back and gets that murder that we were hoping for after he paints a really vivid picture of having a gross uh, affair with someone on the beach, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love that it, Holden Vaughn and his beloved greyhounds that are no longer uh, living were the ones that found the chunks of her dead husband on the beach. So good. I also want to say that, okay, so Belle Noir, clearly in the span of five years came to incredible kind of fame, um, which you can accredit a lot of that to the Muse Pills. But I will say that f- having worked in kind of, um, or, or having knowledge of the publishing industry and stuff like that, romance novelists is like, it's a, it's like a totally different world to any other kind of writer. The pace at which romance novelists are expected to put out books. Like normally if you write a book, it's like, you're expected to like write one book that comes out like every three years or something, right? And you really take your time. There's edits go back and forth, blah, blah, blah. Um, not the case with romance writers. They're expected to churn these fucking things out. And some will Ugh. come out with like two, three, four a year. It's wild. So if anyone saw this pace and was like, ooh, how is she such a bestseller after five years? That's that's like actually... Quantity. Like somewhat standard for romance novels, which is, is wild. Um now, if, as far as the playwriting stuff goes, 
with Austin Summers on only a three-year span because we, you know, obviously he doesn't start taking the pills until two years later. That timeline I'm not so sure about because he's also won a whole bunch of awards for only having been written writing plays for three years that have yeah. gotten attention, right? So that timeline doesn't quite add up as much. But the romance novelist one I think still does. I, I wanted to talk about the chemist one more time. There's a some like there's scenes with the chemist and Belnoir, and scenes with the chemist and the pale person who mm-hmm. she eventually pulls the gun on to to not come back. We already talked about kind of this empathy gap where it's just like very scientific, but um, I also just appreciated seeing her enact, like kind of go through the, the paces of this experiment, just like treating the individuals like specimens where she's really digging into how they're feeling at different times, um, you know, what their, how their behaviors changed. Yeah, it just is, it's so hyper focused on the, science of it all my question for you is what is her end game this is the biggest question i have with um her character is the motivation like she she does reference about like making money off this she does talk about the scientific uh, exploration of this um but then she's also very just you know dark as a human being doesn't care um which is always obviously when scientists get villainized in movies and tv shows and and, in literature it's because they're so focused on their their work and their study and what if they can prove their theory correct i'm not entirely sure what her end game is because her motivation is still very vague on what she wants to do with this we know in the present she's a drug dealer essentially but it doesn't seem like she's tried to market it and make it a bigger thing. It doesn't seem like she's being very, like she's not publishing her scientific results on this, you know? So I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, and kudos to Angelica Ross for like being a fantastic actor with this and not very stoic certain thing. Yeah. So it's unclear to me um, if I'm going to guess I, I don't know. What do, do you have a guess on what the, her motivation is, and what, what I her don't, game is? I don't. I don't have a guess, but I hope that it's some bigger picture we're not seeing just yet. I would like to. I don't know. Maybe there's a tie-in to Death Valley. That would be a, an interesting take. If you know, there's some way the pill ends up relating back to alien experiments or something happening, or or just like going back to the government. We you know so far. After this, we now know that Angelica Ross is the only character of the characters we have so far that is related to the U.S. government and military. And we know that the episode Death Valley features, for those who have seen the preview of Death Valley, it's a flashback to like Eisenhower and like the, I guess that would have been like the 50s. Yeah, that era. So who knows? Maybe there's some kind of origin of the Black Pill situation that comes out of that that connects to Angelica Ross's experience with the, the military. I like that. I think you might be right. Definitely, I like so, that. So that's a guess. It doesn't. It still doesn't answer what her end game is. But you know, it, it's it's a theory out there. Um, now the final kind of phase of the episode focuses on Austin Summers, where we get his origin story. Of course, she uh, after Lark kind of helps jumpstart Belle's second act, she takes herself to a drag show uh, where Austin is. Kind of 
picked upon for being bad at drag, I, I yeah. guess we could say. Yeah. Um, there's also a discussion about, you know, appropriation of gay culture, which fits right in with this whole appropriation of black culture that Bryce brought up so eloquently at the beginning of our show. Well, that and appropriation of um, what Austin references, which the in, you know, back during the Greek days when men would dress up as women. And I think he's insinuating that gay culture has appropriated this for their own culture right and um i had known that or thought about that and it is kind of an interesting conversation layers of appropriation i guess right yeah yeah or the lineage of appropriation it's an interesting conversation like who Um, is truly who truly owns that you know which a lot of things especially with black culture definitely like we know where that originates and and who is the owner, if you will, of that. Um, drag is very unique and different and in, interesting conversation, I guess, that I'd never thought about. True, true. And then we talk about, um, well, and then, of course, Patio Furniture gets called to the stage and does a lip sync to Magic Man by heart. Uh, you know, on a scale of one to ten based on drag shows you've been to, how did this, where did this land for it you? It was, I mean... So I loved it. It was hilarious. It was funny just because seeing Evan Peters do this is just great. And it, it he's awful. And that's the charm in it, I think. Um, the drag shows I've been to are phenomenal, like like acrobatic and sassy and full of like life. This is this was like it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable and awkward because they're like booing him. But I did love it because I, I think Evan Peters just really like threw himself into it. And he's supposed to be, quote unquote, not good at it. Um, but it was fun. I liked it. It was a weird song choice for a drag show. Like, I wouldn't, you never, you don't pick Heart, <laughs> which I love Heart. But like, that's not a, a song you'd expect to see at a drag show. Indeed. Yeah, an odd choice. You know, I've been to a fair number of drag shows, and I think the best one I've seen was one in Cambodia, of all places, where I saw some acrobatics that I still don't know quite how they happened. And this was not that, but you have to respect Patio Furniture for going up there and trying to do her thing. Uh, (laughs) You know, did her thing. I think that's the most we can say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, after the show, Belle approaches Austin to learn more about why he's there. And says that she has a nose for talent. I was kind of a little skeptical at this point because if she just How? saw the same performance we did, yeah. I don't know did you read his that. play? Like you <laughs> saw him do a horrible job of lip syncing. Maybe when she was murdering the guy that was supposed to put his local play on, she stumbled across the manuscript or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, well, of course, we should mention that this is happening again two years later after the original kind of origin. Right. Of- right. Mm-hmm. Bell's and hit it hit it big at this point. She's hit it she's hit it big at this point. She's a known quantity. And so she offers Austin the pill, and the episode ends with them going to feast upon the other drag queens. Of course, Crystal Decanter makes it out free, only to be eaten in the cemetery. You, you should know better than to run to the cemetery. How long have you been living in P Town? I'm sure that uh our music, our our singer friend has been just hanging out around there now for quite some time. Um and, I went, and dies at the hands of the pale person. Yeah, I, I loved it. It was kind of like, oh, um, Eureka is our, our final girl in this in this sequence. And that's awesome. Um, I, I, I love it. It was dramatic. 
it was funny it was silly it was campy it's you know a lot of the episode isn't so this is the perfect amount of camp for me when i'm watching an american horror story when it's constantly in your face over the top it's too much but when you get drag queens in a scene it's expected to be campy and you're there's the expectation there for it to be silly and some snarky some snark in there and that was delivered um in kind of like horrible acting because i do think i remember their some of their characters were supposed to be just straight men right that were just mm-hmm. dressing up because they can make more money doing this funny that's an interesting conversation but anyway the whole chase scene at the end wonderful i loved it it was really good um it was funny uh, and, and of course, you know, as soon as she runs into the cemetery that it's not going to end well. And it was a good jump scare. It wasn't, it wasn't like crazy scary, but it was definitely like, ah, with the pale, pale guy jumping out, uh, from behind her. Loved it. Yeah. Let me go first for, okay. So this is the summation of the episode. I want to, if it's cool with you, I would like to give my review first. Go for a reason it. for it. But is okay. there anything else you wanted to surface before we get to that point? Um, one question I had is, how does everyone know Mickey is a sex worker? He comes up to everyone at the bar and they're like, within like three sentences, they're like, I don't like, I don't need you. Or like, I don't have money for you. Or like, you can't have my money. Or like, you don't need to pay. I'm married. Like, because I don't need your service. Like, they all know <laughs> that he's a sex worker. I feel like in any other place, if this ever happened... If someone came up to you and talked to you, maybe it's because he's a meth addict and he shows that. So they just, that's, that's the telltale. But every single person he comes up to at the bar, they're like, I'm new here. And he's like, Hey, buy me a drink. And like, leave me alone. I don't want your services. Yeah. They do seem to have, everyone has a sixth sense for Mickey's profession for whatever reason. Yeah. I find Mm -hmm. that interesting. Um, interesting. One other um, line that I thought was interesting, um, and this is, you know, again, they they hammer it home a bit, which they do in American Horror Story. But, you know, the, the pill is actually, like, very literal now. <laughs> it's not a metaphor for anything. It's so literal. Um, and I believe it's the chemist who says, like, those who are talented have this rage from their arrogance, right? Yeah, yeah, um, that is right. And their certainty that they're better than everyone else. And the untalented... Um, have rage at the world because it gave them and everyone in the in the world because it gave them dreams that were too big and that right. is such a oof like that is like are we you know it's a good that's a great comment on society as are we are we like telling you know when you tell kids you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up or like here's your trophy you're so good is that actually detrimental um, for people actually finding out what they're talented at or just assuming that they're they're good at a lot of things. And when you're actually asked to gamble on that talent, do you truly think you're talented or not that you would risk becoming a pale person? That's the metaphor. Or becoming incredibly successful but being a bloodsucker. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think it's a veiled also jab at millennials, really. You know, the mm-hmm. generation that got participation trophies and was, to your point, told you could be whatever you want to be and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of entitlement being built into, or entitlement and expectation being mm-hmm. built into the culture, you know, that extends you- to your wealthy parents buying your way into Ivy League schools. You know what I mean? 
There's a really good uh, SNL skit with Carrie Mulligan where they're on like a, um, it's like a Star Trek-y type ship and Mikey Day and Carrie Mulligan are having this argument and they're totally millennials, maybe Gen Z's, but more millennials. And all like, they're like going to a black hole and all the other people are very serious and they're like, oh my God, did you hear how he spoke to me? Like, I need to speak my truth right now. And it's like stuff like that where that's might be a commentary on kind of like that type of culture that a lot of people are raised in our generation and younger is that detrimental. But I, I, I liked that those two sentences actually spelled out a bigger problem in society or possibly a problem. I don't know. Anyway, those were the two things I wanted to point out. So what's your review? So here's my review is I, of course, really, I really enjoyed getting all these origin stories. Uh, it was interesting background, certainly learning more about the chemist and how the muse pill came to be, although it, there's still a lot of unanswered questions around that. Uh, it was really interesting to see, of course, how Belle became the Belle Noir we know in the modern or in the present timeline, uh, how, you know, Austin became the Austin Summers we know in the present timeline. Uh, interesting to see kind of the trajectory of uh, Mickey and TB Karen and Lark and all these others as well, too. Um, and certainly to see how a pale person gets created. I think those were all interesting things. Um, and, and I'm not appreciated. I thought the acting was great and there was a lot of really good scenes in here. And the writing was good, too. The thing, the one thing, though, when I finish this episode and it's all said and done, I ask myself, like, we only have six episodes in Red Tide. We spent an entire episode flashing back, and we've seen this all now. And I'm left thinking to myself, what really was the point of a full episode on these origin stories? You could make an argument that we needed to get some more background on the chemist. And I think that was useful. But I don't know that we needed to have all that extra exposition necessarily on Bell, on Austin, uh, Mickey and all these others, un unless it's going to pay off and be valuable in some way to how their characters, you know, where they end up in episodes five and six. Um, as of right now, I, re I, I watch this episode and I'm, I'm just left, yeah, in that kind of position where I'm like, what did I really get out of it? What's the point? How is it going to connect to the modern day story uh, in a way that furthers the story instead of just kind of being like, oh, that was, that was some interesting background. You know what I mean? Um, there's an exercise that is taught often in creative writing where when you are coming up with characters, you write really fleshed out long backstories for your characters. Now, you don't always include those character, those backstories in your novel or whatever. You use it as kind of internal knowledge, foundational document, so that way you like understand your character better and know how they would act in different situations and this and that. Um, and then you can make money after your whole series comes out and do all these side stories about your characters or their like um, like uh, J.K. Rowling does, like George R. R. Martin's doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that one hundred percent. You can pull out but, your notes out of your pocket and do that. But but it's because it's, you need to know who your characters are. Yes. Right. So I'm Mike. I guess my question coming out of this is like, are we? Is this? Is this just Brad Falchuk like showing his work? Like he's like Look, indulging I, us and himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting stuff, but it's not really vital to the storyline that is happening that we all really care about with Harry and everybody else. Or is Good it going to play a big role? I, I can't answer that yet, but I feel like not knowing at this point, it, it dulls my rating slightly to the point where I'm going to give this a four instead of something higher. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, four, good... four, four, um, four severed hands on the beach. Severed hand, or black pills or, or, um, we've done black pills before. I'm going to do severed hands did. on the beach. Severed hands on the beach. I like it. Uh, that's interesting. Your take on that. I'm going to go a different way. Um, and, and just say, I agree with you. Bigger picture of like, what is the purpose of this episode going to be? Um, as a standalone experience, I thought it was great. I really liked it. Um, I, I I will hit on that. The chemist, even though it seems like it's supposed to be the chemist's origin story, it didn't give me any extra information about motivations besides she's a scientist and she moved there five years ago and got these people hooked on this. Um, and I think, I hope that the, the direction they go is the way you talk that we're going to get connected to the in the second part of double feature um i mean she's literally letting people run around the small town killing each other so <laughs> for her study um so along your your notes i would say it was kind of nice to see a fully fleshed out origin episode as opposed to a mishmash of flashbacks that we get in random episodes that we always typically see in American horror story, like jumping back and forth all the time. And it's harder for us to review. So it was interesting to have them all done in a consolidated episode. So we got, we just got everybody. Um, That's who fair. Lives in Provincetown for the most part. Um, so for American horror story, I, I appreciated this. Um, I also really loved the, Halloween overtones of when this is taking place. Uh, it's really kind of hitting the spot right now with fall setting in. So I loved that um, the costumes and people walk around. Hence, um, pale guy can walk around with blood on his face because it looks like a costume. It, 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 that was kind of fun. And I appreciated that. I'm going to give this uh, four and a quarter. Uh, and that's what I'd written from the beginning. And I was curious if I was going to, after talking to you, bump it up to 4.5 or not, because I really did like it. But compared to last week's, which was really, really good, this was still really good um, for me. Uh, so 4.25. So eight and a quarter for both of us. That's that's a good episode. Season remains strong. You know, if I wanted to take the time, I would go back and average all of our scores for every season. And we could use that as a real oh. definitive way to get. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe someday when it's like they announce it's the final season of American Horror Story, we'll have to do it and like just look by the numbers, which seasons do we like the best. Let's outsource an intern to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Some free volunteer intern. Um, but yeah, eight and a quarter is pretty good. This season remains consistent. I am excited to see what happens in these final two episodes. And I'm still... Mm. Uh, working through my feelings that we only have two episodes of Red Tide left. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bummer. Anyway, that being said, Chris, where can people find you between now and next week? Uh, I will be on Instagram and Twitter. I'm much more active on Instagram, but uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Chris Husted, Chris with a K. Tyler, where can people find you? People can find me on both those platforms too, at TJMoss11, but you can also find me and us at our email address at thisamericanhorrorstory at gmail.com where you can reach out with thoughts, theories, questions, all that good stuff. Or you can just participate on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisamericanhorrorstory. Comment, send us a message, any of those things work well. And of course, you can rate us, review us on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcasts on. We sincerely appreciate that and appreciate your time listening. Until next week, happy hauntings. Thank you.